You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, you! If you haven't already listened to our last episode, The Greater Good, you should go back and do that before starting this one. Also, did you know that you can get new episodes ad-free and early by signing up to support the show at patreon.com slash theconstant? You did? Wow, great. Here goes, then. It's important to say that William Donald Hamilton was not a bad guy. He could be prickly, for sure, and bitter, no doubt, and everyone agreed that he wasn't very good with people. Many thought he might be on the spectrum. Nevertheless, he was universally understood to be a good-hearted and caring person who had a great love for humanity, even if he didn't always know how to express it. The journal Nature called him the gentle giant of genetics. Still, when he and his friend and colleague George Price began working out the selfish gene theory of natural selection, they drew very different conclusions from it. Price became a radical altruist, giving away not just his money and possessions, but eventually his very life in a pathological quest to escape his genetic destiny. Bill Hamilton, on the other hand, became increasingly convinced that the best way to help humanity was to allow it to suffer. At the end of last episode, I explained how his personal brand of eugenics grew over the last three decades of the 20th century. He started out opposing fertility treatments, then cesarean sections, and eventually became hostile to nearly all medical intervention and made public comments supporting infanticide. But unlike most of the eugenicists that come to mind when you hear that word, Hamilton was motivated by a genuinely higher concern. He wasn't a racist trying to engineer superiority, and he wasn't a laissez-faire industrialist looking to celebrate the moral selfishness of unbridled capitalism. As a matter of fact, his eugenical views were mainly born from a paper that had upset that view of economics. It's fascinating to consider how deeply interconnected the field of evolutionary biology is and has always been to the field of economics. Darwin himself may never have had the idea for natural selection had he not read Thomas Malthus's economic theory in an essay on the principle of population. Malthus's central insight was that populations tend to grow in accordance with their resources. You can never do away with want or hunger because if you succeed in increasing the amount of resources available or better distributing those resources, the population will use those resources to expand until it's back in a place of scarcity. 
Essentially, you can't alleviate suffering. You can only delay suffering. And when that debt comes due, it's with interest. Logically speaking, if Malthus was right, every life you improve or save in the present will eventually cost more lives down the line, right? Because when the condition of famine re-expresses itself, it'll be towards even more people. But while Malthus's concept of economic scarcity led Darwin to natural selection, for many economists, Darwin's theory was more compatible with one of Malthus's contemporaries, Adam Smith. Smith's Wealth of Nations, published in the very conspicuous year of 1776, essentially gave birth to the study of economics, particularly free market capitalism. Whether or not Smith himself thought this was his central idea or not is debatable, but economists, to come, certainly did. The distillation of the philosophy taken from Smith comes in this, uh, rather long, sorry, section from Wealth of Nations. As every individual, therefore, endeavors as much as he can both to employ his capital in the support of domestic industry and so to direct that industry that its produce may be of the greatest value, every individual necessarily labors to render the annual revenue of the society as great as he can. He generally, indeed, neither intends to promote the public interest nor knows how much he is promoting it. By preferring the support of domestic to that of foreign industry, he intends only his own security, and by directing that industry in such matter as its produce may be of the greatest value, he intends only his own gain, and he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of his intention. Nor is it always the worse for society that it was no part of it. By pursuing his own interest, he frequently promotes that of the society more effectually than when he really intends to promote it. I have never known much good by those who affected to trade for the public good. It is an affectation, indeed, not very common among merchants, and very few words need be employed in dissuading them from it. The Invisible Hand of the Market left unfettered by regulation, guides all those individuals towards their own personal greatest benefit, and through the competition between them, this individual benefit redounds to the whole of the population. Society benefits better from selfishness than from altruism. Smith's invisible hand sounds a lot like the survival of the fittest, Individuals in a society competing in their own self-interest contribute to the creation of a more efficient and fair overall economy, just like individuals in a species competing in their own self-interest contribute to the improvement of fitness through natural selection. Of course, by 1968, Bill Hamilton and George Price had shown that the natural selection part of that idea wasn't quite so simple. And that year, the economist Garrett Hardin showed that Smith's part wasn't either. Let's make Hardin's observation into a word problem. Imagine a pond full of fish, very special fish. Every night, each pair of them gives birth to one new baby fish, and by nightfall, those babies miraculously grow to full size and mate themselves. So, if the pond starts with a dozen fish, after the first night, the population will grow to 18. After the second night, there'll be 27, three nights in 40, four nights in 60, etc., etc. But wait, let's say that while the fish are extraordinary, the pond itself 
is not. It's quite small and can only support a dozen fish at a time. In that case, the math is a lot easier. The first night, 12 fish give birth to six babies, but by the next night, six of the 18 will have been starved out. And say that one day, something happens that kills off a bunch of the fish, cutting the population from 12 to six. Well, that night, those six will give birth to three new ones, and then that nine will give birth to four, taking the population to 13. One of those dies, we're back to 12. The fish population of the pond is essentially static. As long as at least two fish survive, they'll eventually grow back to 12. Except, imagine also that there are four fishermen, John, Jacob, James, and Jeremy, who stumble upon the pond. Wow, they say, an endless supply of fish. We should live here. So they build four little houses for their four little families, and every day they go out fishing. According to Adam Smith, John, Jacob, James, and Jeremy, left to their own devices, will compete over the available resources for their own self-interest, and the invisible hand will guide that competition until they reach a strategy that optimally advantages everyone. I may be terrible at math, I hope I haven't been so far today, but even I can work out what that means for our four fishermen, our tiny pond, and our twelve magical fish. If each fisherman takes out one fish and calls it a day, there will be eight fish left for the nightly mating ritual. That means the eight will produce four babies, and in the morning there will be 12 again, just in time for the fishermen to pull out another four, and the cycle continues perpetually. But hold on, because while this would be the best thing for John, Jacob, James, and Jeremy to do collectively and in the long term, it's not even close to the best thing for John to do himself on any given Tuesday. The best thing he can do today is to catch as many fish as he can eat. And the same is true for Jacob, and for James, and even for that piece of shit Jeremy. The optimal outcome, long term, would be for each of them to tamp back and catch as few fish as necessary. But the hand of the market can't achieve that result, because it's not just invisible, it's blind. Within a few days, the pond would be empty, and the pursuit of self-interest wouldn't make John, Jacob, James, and Jeremy efficient, it would make them starve. Hardin took his example of this problem from a 19th century economist named William Forster Lloyd. Instead of fishermen and a pond, Lloyd's example was cattle ranchers sharing a common pasture. But it's the same thing. And it wasn't exactly new. In his book Politics, fucking Aristotle, of all people, had recognized the same basic issue. He wrote, What is common to the greatest number gets the least amount of care. Rare good call from Aristotle. Hardin called this problem the tragedy of the commons, and it shot a hole right under the waterline for free market economics. Rational self-interest was supposed to make everything better, not just for the actor, but also their competitors. But no, Hardin's tragedy showed that rational self-interest can not just harm the community, but even the self-interested person themselves. It is in the long-term interest of everyone to cut down on the burning of fossil fuels. But in the short term, each individual person and community and nation has a rational self-interest in producing more energy. Even if the cost of climate change comes due tomorrow, which it kind of is, huh? That cost is diffused around the whole world, whereas the benefit I get from driving my car is acute, immediate, and personal. 
The overuse of antibiotics drives the evolution of drug-resistant disease that threatens everyone. But today, it keeps me from getting sick and helps keep the price of the food I buy down. This is the tragedy of the commons. And Bill Hamilton realized almost immediately that the tragedy wasn't just a threat for economic or environmental systems, it was also a threat to natural selection itself. In the last couple of years, you've probably heard people say that COVID will become less and less severe and virulent until it ends up just another common cold bug, because the optimal, long-term interest of the disease is to not burn through its potential hosts. Maybe. But to pathogens, hosts are but a small fishing pond or a common pasture, and they have just as much evolutionary reason to abuse that commons as to sustain it, or more. You, you probably believe that we should transition away from fossil fuels, that we should have regulations to prevent overfishing, that there should be limits on the use of antibiotics, and so do I. Because I believe that the short-term pain of catching fewer fish and growing less beef and paying more for energy is a far better pain than having no fish to eat in the future whatsoever and having untreatable diseases and unchecked climate change. If you're with me on all of that, then I have some bad news for you. That is the same exact logic that fueled Bill Hamilton's eugenics. He hypothesized that modern medical interventions could create a special kind of tragedy of the commons, something called mutational meltdown, which I know sounds awesome, but it's not. So the thinking went, if medical treatment allows a deleterious trait to be passed down to the next generation, it's like John taking an extra fish out of the pond. It doesn't just impact the next day's catch, it negatively affects the fitness of the whole school of fish. With mutational meltdown, deleterious effects compound and decrete over generations until the birth rate of the population falls beneath the death rate, at which point you've entered, and if mutational meltdown wasn't a rad enough sounding term, get ready for this, an extinction vortex. To be clear, while all of the composite parts of Bill Hamilton's eugenics system Tragedy of the Commons, Mutational Meltdown, Extinction Vortex are real. His belief that modern medicine, fertility treatments, cesarean sections, etc. are leading humanity towards them was, well, just that, a belief. One that few other biologists, geneticists, or even economists agree with. Which is a really important thing to keep in mind, since if you get a large enough group of economists together, there should be at least one or two who believe in literally everything. But... While Hamilton's ideas are deeply improbable, they are not technically implausible, a sentiment which is going to come up a few times over the course of this story. Speaking of which, we should get to the story, huh? I mean, I hope that the invisible hand and the tragedy of the commons and mutational meltdown are all fascinating in themselves, but they're only the slightest of jumping off places for our actual topic. Mostly a way to get you to understand Bill Hamilton's starting position. I say starting position because, as noted at the end of last episode, Hamilton was an easily embittered contrarian. And when his plausible concerns were largely dismissed by his peers, he dug in harder. When the mainstream press picked up disparagingly on his eugenics, he dug in harder. And when the Vatican disinvited him from a scientific conference because he had suggested that maybe sometimes it was a good idea to murder babies, he really dug in. His plausible concerns grew way beyond the realm of plausible. He became increasingly sympathetic to anti-medicine ideas and theories writ large. In 1992, one such theory appeared. 
Not in one of the regular places Bill Hamilton typically read, not in Nature or Science or The Lancet. No, it was written up in the pages of the March issue of Rolling Stone magazine. And as strange as it might seem for such an article to appear in Rolling Stone, stranger still were its effects. It led to lawsuits, special meetings of the Royal Society, decades of scientific analysis and fighting. It led Bill Hamilton to Africa, and then to his death. And probably a lot more deaths besides. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. I called part one of this story the greater good, but for part two, the greater good is well beyond the rear view. Today's episode, Heart of Darkness. I have made it a cliche to come out of the introduction saying something to the tune of, this story could begin in this year, or that year, or another year. But in the case of our topic today, that uncertainty isn't just present, it's crucial. The theory Bill Hamilton read in Rolling Stone back in 1992 depends specifically on when the story begins. And that means, somewhat paradoxically, that we cannot begin at the beginning. So instead, let's begin with another beginning. In March of 1981, a 33-year-old man in Los Angeles went to his doctor with a case of pneumonia. Not a terribly abnormal thing on the surface, but beneath the surface, something big was up. The particular form of pneumonia he presented with is called pneumocystis pneumonia, and it is caused by a fairly common fungus that lives inside of lungs. Maybe your lungs, maybe mine. We probably wouldn't know, because for most people, this fungus is totally harmless. It only causes problems if you're severely immunocompromised, which our 33-year-old Los Angelino was. In fact, he was so immunocompromised that in spite of a heavy treatment of antibiotics, antimicrobials, and antivirals, the pneumonia persisted and worsened. On May 3rd, 1981, he died. And doctors had no idea why. Two months earlier, Another seemingly healthy 30-year-old had also developed pneumocystis pneumonia. And the next month, a 29-year-old recovering Hodgkin's disease patient had, too. In April, there were two more cases, all in Los Angeles, all in young, otherwise healthy men. In June, the Centers for Disease Control published a report on the five mysterious cases of pneumocystis pneumonia. In the closing editorial note, the CDC said... The occurrence of pneumocystosis in these five previously healthy individuals without a clinically apparent underlying immunodeficiency is unusual. The fact that these patients were all homosexuals suggests an association between some aspect of a homosexual lifestyle or disease acquired through sexual contact and pneumocystis pneumonia in this population. Nobody knew it yet, but the AIDS epidemic had just begun. For a while, it was mostly called GRID, or Gay-Related Immunodeficiency Disease, and soon enough there were hundreds upon hundreds of cases. Still, no one knew for sure what it was. Something was creating severe immunodeficiency in people, and most of those people were men who had sex with other men. Not exclusively, though. 
In May of 1982, the New York Times ran an article headlined, New Homosexual Disorder Worries Health Officials, which, contrary to the head, related that 13 of the then 335 official patients were heterosexual women, and some of the male patients were thought to have been straight. This understanding that AIDS presented mostly, but not exclusively, in homosexual men was a real problem. AIDS was commonly known among the civilian population as gay cancer or gay plague and written off as unimportant or even as God's homophobic will. But if this gay-related immunodeficiency disease had actually been strictly gay-related, it might have been easier for health officials to nail down its cause. Instead, the possibilities seemed endless. Was it caused by environmental factors, largely but not exclusively experienced by homosexuals? Was it the side effect of some new street drug? If it was contagious, was it a virus or bacteria, a fungus, and how was it spread? It took until 1984 to figure it out. In the March issue of the American Journal of Medicine, researchers interviewed nine patients suffering from what was now called AIDS about their sexual histories. They then sought out the partners of those patients, and then their partners, and so on, and ended up with a sort of flowchart that proved the disease was transmitted sexually. The first patient in Los Angeles had been sexually active with the second, who had been active with the third and the fourth. The third had spread the disease to a patient in Florida, who had in turn spread it to Georgia. In New York, where the bulk of the cases were concentrated, the sequence of events was less obvious, but everywhere the researchers went looking, they found AIDS patients, 40 in total, and each of them were connected to another by sexual contact. A virus, HIV-1, which Luc Montagnier had discovered a year earlier, was the cause of AIDS. But the cluster study had something more to say. All of the breakouts pointed back to one person, a Canadian flight attendant named Gaden Dugas. The cluster map gave a number for every other patient based on where they were located and when they expressed symptoms. New York 1, New York 2, Los Angeles 1, Los Angeles 2, etc. But because Dugas wasn't a resident of the areas being studied, the map represented him with a letter, O, for out of California. But journalists, understandably, misread that O as zero, which is how Gaten Dugas became known as Patient Zero. In the popular consciousness, Dugas wasn't just the originator of the human immunodeficiency virus, but a callous and perhaps sociopathic villain. In his book, And the Band Played On, journalist Randy Schiltz painted Dugas as a reckless Lothario who traveled the world having sex with thousands of men even though he knew he was sick and spreading his sickness. Later, Schiltz expressed regret for his portrayal of Dugas, but a fat lot of good it did. As far as most people were concerned, they knew where AIDS came from. An evil, not to mention Canadian, flight attendant. But that was absolutely 100% wrong. As the years went by and AIDS spread to millions upon millions of people, the search for its origins continued, and the more researchers looked, the farther back they had to. A San Francisco man named Ken Horn had died of Kaposi's sarcoma in April of 1980, a year before the pneumonia cases that attracted the CDC's attention. In 1987, a woman also from San Francisco died of AIDS, but it was discovered that a decade earlier, she had given birth to a child, the first of three, who died of a mysterious immunodeficiency disease, which takes AIDS back to 1977. 
Also in 1987, biologists at Tulane University tested blood from a St. Louis teenager who died of a similar mysterious illness and found HIV. The boy, named Robert Rayford, had died in 1969. That same year, doctors from the Glasgow Royal Infirmary published a report of 117 cases of Kaposi's sarcoma, an otherwise rare cancer found frequently in AIDS patients in Tanzania, and hypothesized that they might be due to some unknown infectious agent. The cases they analyzed had presented in 1964. Finally, there's the earliest known confirmed case of AIDS, which is going to be very important to this story. It occurred in a Bantu man living in Kinshasa, which was then called Leopoldville, in the then-Belgian Congo. He'd shown up at a clinic thinking he had sickle cell anemia and had his blood taken. Decades later, that blood was analyzed and showed that his problem wasn't sickle cell. It was HIV. He had come to the clinic in 1959. At the time of this discovery, it was assumed that the 1959 Congolese patient must have been among the true firsts, not a patient zero, but close, and that the human immunodeficiency virus must have evolved not much earlier. The beginning of the story appeared to have been found. There was a when, somewhere between 1957 and 1959. There was a where, Central Africa, specifically the Congo around Kinshasa. But the bigger question was the how. How had HIV emerged? What were its origins? And that is the question that brought Bill Hamilton into the story. Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. I'm working on an upcoming story about a thing I got wrong, which has me thinking about how we get stuck focusing on problems instead of solutions. It can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when faced with a challenge in your life. But when you learn how to find your own solutions, there is no better feeling. A therapist can help you become a better problem solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. I'm not saying that therapy is directly responsible for me correcting that big upcoming mistake, but it sure hasn't hurt, and it's helped me deal with stress and other problems. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists anytime. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash the constant to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant. When it comes to hiring, you need to trust your gut. But what if you could give your gut some help? When you want to find top talent fast, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. You want to know what's great about Indeed? Let's talk about Instant Match. Indeed does the hard work for you. 
Sponsor a job and boom, Instant Match shows you candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description immediately after you post. With Instant Match, you can start hiring fast. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows that when you're doing everything for your company, you can't afford to overspend on hiring. Visit Indeed.com slash The Constant to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash The Constant. Indeed.com slash The Constant. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. More than 40 years before AIDS began ravaging New York, there was a different epidemic there. Polio. While polio had been around for millennia, the first major outbreak had occurred in New York City in the summer of 1916, when it killed around 2,000 people. From then on, polio outbreaks occurred every summer in cities around the world. 1947 was a particularly bad summer for polio. It ravaged England and Wales, New York and Chicago. That same year, New York also saw an outbreak of an even more dangerous disease, smallpox. But city and federal health officials sprung into action and managed to vaccinate more than 6 million New Yorkers in a little over three weeks, snuffing out the threat of smallpox almost as soon as it emerged. The 1947 New York smallpox campaign was practically miraculous, and it proved that health services could protect the public from communicable diseases via mass vaccination. If only there were a polio vaccine, we could end the annual epidemics forever. The next year, Jonas Salk began working on one. That's a story you probably know the broad strokes of, but it's worth pointing out a few bumps in the Jonas Salk cures polio narrative. Of course, why we're talking about polio at all might be a touch confusing, but try to go with me here and just enjoy cutting Jonas Salk down to size a bit. Salk's polio vaccine wasn't the only one by a stretch. In fact, by the time he made his first animal trials, two other vaccines were already being produced and one had already been proven. What made Salk's different, and in his mind at least superior, was that his was made with a killed or inactivated virus. The other two were live virus vaccines, developed through attenuation, which is the process of running a virus through animal hosts in which it doesn't do very well until it's too weak, hopefully, to harm a human, but still present enough to trigger an immune response. The danger of a live vaccine was exactly what you might think, that the virus might not always be attenuated enough, therefore causing polio infections instead of preventing them. But there were drawbacks. Salk's inactivated virus vaccine required booster shots, whereas the attenuated vaccines did not. Actually, the attenuated vaccines didn't require shots at all. They were delivered orally, another strong point in their favor. And as it turned out, Salk's vaccine was not as immune to the threat of inadvertent infection as he'd hoped. To inactivate the polio virus, Salk used formaldehyde, in a complicated process, the instructions for which ran a full 55 pages. Salk famously did not patent his method. When Edward R. Murrow asked him why not, he responded, 
could you patent the sun? But in truth, his lab had considered a patent and had declined because they didn't think they had a real claim. In any event, when his vaccine was approved in 1955, three labs immediately began producing it. And one of those labs, Cutter Laboratories, got that 55-page protocol wrong. Exactly why and who's to blame is a topic perhaps for another time, but the result was that the very first nationwide polio vaccine campaign had to be halted nearly as soon as it began. Not soon enough, though. 200,000 children had already been injected with live polio virus. 40,000 of them came down with the disease. 200 were paralyzed. 10 were killed. And that was not the end of the trouble for the polio vaccination campaign. Unbeknownst to anyone, portions of both of the major American vaccines, Salk's injectable inactivated virus version, as well as Albert Sabin's attenuated oral one, were carrying another disease. Simeon vacuolating virus 40, or SV40, is a DNA virus that typically infects rhesus monkeys and macaques. Most of the time, it appears to produce no symptoms at all, except when the monkeys are infected with another virus that suppresses their immune response, in which case SV40 can cause kidney disease and encephalitis. That other virus, and this will get your attention, is called simian immunodeficiency virus, or SIV. And oh yes, we will be coming back to it soon. For now, the important thing to know is that both Salk and Sabin's polio vaccines were cultured and grown in the kidneys of rhesus monkeys. And SV40 was not effectively attenuated or killed by either process. The bad news is that between 1955 and 1961, millions of people were infected with SV40 in the course of being inoculated for polio. The further bad news is that SV40 has been shown to contribute to cancer growth in laboratory hamsters and rats. The good news, finally, is that there are a lot of studies taken from different angles and with different methodologies which suggest that we dodged a bullet. While you can't prove a negative, there have been no documented cases of SV40 causing cancer in humans, and long-term population studies have shown no increased incidence of cancer or mortality in people who were given the tainted vaccines. There are a few lessons to take from the Cutter incident and the SV40 contamination event that'll come into play very shortly. Before that, though, I think it's important to look at them by themselves. Because, as you may have already figured, both of these events are heavily cited by the vaccine-hesitant and vaccine-deniers. And, like, you know, understandably so. The Cutter incident is one of the most conspicuous failures of 20th century medicine, and SV40 was only spared from being an even greater catastrophe by dumb luck. That better science and better regulation has made a recurrence of either kind of event almost entirely impossible is worth saying, but it's still cold comfort for some. Being able to deal with unseen consequences after they are seen isn't much proof against those that remain unforeseen. But it's worth remembering what was at stake with the polio vaccination effort. Every summer, for decades, tens of thousands of mostly children were infected with polio in America alone. Thousands were killed, and even more were permanently harmed. And now, they aren't. Between 1979 and a month ago, there wasn't a single case of polio in the wild in the whole United States. That might have changed in July when a case of polio was found in New York. Whether that case is due to wild polio in the community or not is still to be determined. 
Although, if it is, you can bet your bottom dollar that it is due to vaccine hesitancy. And that's the thing. For how bad the Cutter incident was, and it really was, and how bad the SB40 contamination event could have been, and it really could have been, the worst outcomes from both were that they made people less likely to get vaccinated. Because the threat of polio in the wild was far greater than the risk of vaccination even then. In order to outweigh the risk of polio, the vaccines would have had to be responsible for a much larger tragedy, a much worse outbreak, an epidemic that could dwarf the horror even of polio, like HIV. And that's exactly what Bill Hamilton came to suspect had happened. If you know anything about polio, you probably know about Jonas Salk. If you know a little more, you might also know about Albert Sabin. But the original polio vaccine was developed by a third lab under a third leader, Hilary Koprowski. Koprowski was born in Warsaw in 1916. He was an accomplished pianist and composer with two degrees in music, one from Chopin University and another from the Santa Cecilia Conservatory. But he was primarily a doctor. He received his MD from Warsaw University in 1939, just in time for Germany to invade. Kaprowski and his wife, pathologist Irina Grasberg, fled the country, eventually ending up in Rio de Janeiro, where they spent a few years trying to develop a yellow fever vaccine for the Rockefeller Foundation. After the war, they moved to New York, where Hillary got a job leading a team at Lateral Laboratories, developing the first effective polio vaccine. Like Sabin's, Kaprowski's vaccine was attenuated, and delivered orally in a single dose. In 1948, he administered it to the first human test subject, himself. Two years later, there was a wider trial of children at Letchworth Village, a residential home for disabled persons made infamous by Geraldo Rivera in the early 70s. But back in 1950, Kaprowski's trial was an unalloyed success. 100% of those given the vaccine developed antibodies without any deleterious side effects. If you grew up in the United States or Western Europe and received a polio vaccination, it was probably either Salk's or Sabin's. But much of the world received Kaprowski's, including much of Africa. Outside of Salk's campaign in the U.S. and Canada, one of the earliest mass vaccination drives against polio was led by Hillary Kaprowski. It ran between 1957 and 1960 in the then Belgian Congo, and inoculated roughly a million or a million and a half people. And maybe it gave rise to AIDS. Wait, no, 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 no. That's a very nice teasy sentence, but it's not correct. We're finally getting to the meat of this story, and I think it is the most dangerous territory I've ever tread upon in the history of this show. So I'm going to try to proceed very carefully, even if it's at the expense of the narrative. I'll try to find some good music to pick up the slack, though. Yeah, that's pretty good. Let's just get the idea out there, since all of the pieces are basically in place now. The theory that eventually caught the attention of Bill Hamilton is that HIV originated with Hillary Kaprowski's polio vaccination campaign in the Congo. That theory has by now, been pretty well eradicated 
That's not to say that there aren't people out there who still believe it, there most certainly are, but I think it's safe to say that the evidence against the theory is intimidating, both in quality and quantity, and we'll get back to that in a little bit. But if you say, well, of course that theory is wrong, it's obviously wrong on its face, well, hold on. Because while this theory, usually called the oral polio vaccine or OPV AIDS hypothesis, is almost certainly incorrect, it is not at all implausible. And that is what makes it so perilous to talk about. What pretty much everyone agrees on is that HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, descends from some strain or strains of SIV, simian immunodeficiency virus. There are multiple strains of HIV and multiple strains of SIV, and we'll come back to some of that down the line. But for understanding the theory, we only need to look at one of each. HIV type 1M is the oldest and most prevalent strain of the viruses which cause AIDS. And that is the variant found in the Congolese man in Leopoldville back in 1959. The closest relative to HIV type 1M is a strain of simian immunodeficiency virus called SIV-CPZ. Here, CPZ denotes chimpanzee, because that is the native population for this strain of the virus. Like the chimps in the Belgian Congo, near Kinshasa, which was then Leopoldville. Somehow, SIV-CPZ entered the human population. Everyone agrees on that. And they also agree that this zoonotic spillover must have happened around or before 1959, given the first known patient, in Leopoldville. As it happens, Hilary Kaprowski was in exactly the same area, at exactly the same time, administering polio vaccines to exactly the same population. All right, so you see where we're going here, right? But how would an immunization campaign serve as a vector for SIV-CPZ to get into humans and become HIV? Maybe you're already putting this together. I spent enough time talking about the early failures of Jonas Salk's vaccine for no apparent reason after all. The same process for culturing Salk and Sabin's vaccines in the United States, which resulted in contamination with SV40, was also used in the Congo by Kaprowski primate kidneys. But, according to the proponents of the OPV hypothesis, Kaprowski's lab didn't use macaques infected with SV40. They used chimps infected with SIV. Again, with as much force and clarity as I can muster, this did not happen. But, at least when this hypothesis was first proposed, that wasn't known. And it did seem, at the least, plausible. Now, it's difficult to say for sure who first came up with the OPV-AIDS hypothesis. There are two early sources. An independent scholar calling himself Louis Pascal, I'm fairly certain that's a pseudonym, and a San Francisco guerrilla AIDS activist named Blaine Ellswood. They might each have arrived at the idea independently, though it seems likely their ideas share a Q-text, perhaps through a Texas physician named Eva Lee Sneed, who gave a radio interview about her misbegotten belief that SV40 was a precursor to HIV. 
Pascal wrote up a messy and not terribly well-sourced 19,000-word paper on his theory and submitted it to several prestigious journals, including famously the Journal of Medical Ethics, who rejected it mainly on the basis of its insuperable length. Ellswood, on the other hand, reached out to a journalist friend in Texas named Tom Curtis and told him he should investigate for himself. A year later, Tom Curtis had, and his story ran with the headline, The Origin of AIDS, a startling new theory attempts to answer the question, was it an act of God or an act of man? It appeared in the March 1992 issue of Rolling Stone, and it caused a firestorm. It invited mostly derision, including from Jonas Salk himself, and it invited a gigantic lawsuit from Hillary Kaprowski, which Rolling Stone eventually settled with a statement that amounted to a near retraction. But the story did find a more interested audience, too, including, finally, Bill Hamilton. In 1992, Bill Hamilton was practically lab-designed to be sympathetic to the OPV-HIV hypothesis. Over the last two decades, his objections to medicine had gotten more and more broad and more and more contrarian. A vaccination campaign to end one epidemic accidentally giving birth to an even worse epidemic was right in line with his concerns. And his bitterness at what he saw as his mistreatment by the scientific community probably played a role too. He never fully got over John Maynard Smith rejecting his initial paper on kin selection for nature. And over time, he came to see every rejection, every call for revision as a personal slight. When he did publish, he never felt he was given enough attention. However well-cited his papers were, they should have been more so. However convinced people became of his ideas, they should have been convinced sooner. He saw that same ill-treatment in the response to Louis Pascal, whose paper had been rejected, and in Tom Curtis's article, which was summarily dismissed by a majority of the scientific community. It wasn't fair. As far as Hamilton could tell, the OPV hypothesis was entirely logical, entirely plausible, even possibly true. Yet nobody would give it the time of day. Just the same way they'd ignored his rule, his inclusive fitness, his Red Queen theory, so many of the ideas he'd pioneered. All of those ideas he felt had eventually been vindicated, though not loudly or quickly enough, so why shouldn't the same be true of this one? He also felt another kinship, pun intended, with the OPV hypothesis. As his eugenical ideas had gotten bolder, he'd found that many people and institutions bristled and backed away from him out of what he took to be cowardice. And he saw that same cowardice in the dismissal of the new hypothesis. On that count, he had a point. It was clear that a lot of scientists were allergic to the OPV hypothesis because of its implications. It seemed to fault Hilary Kaprowski for causing AIDS. And by the same tone, it faulted the institution of science more broadly and vaccines more specifically. There was a real concern that the public would take the OPV hypothesis as an alarm, that it would increase vaccine hesitancy and by that help polio and other infectious diseases continue to spread around the world, particularly in Africa. But that's not the point, thought Hamilton. The question wasn't what would happen if the hypothesis were true, the question was only whether it was true. If it damaged Kaprowski or vaccinology or even the organ of science itself, so be it. That wasn't the truth's fault. Kaprowski and vaccinology and science had only themselves to blame. 
Hamilton's advocacy for the OPV-HIV hypothesis took several forms. In the first place, he attempted to write letters in major scientific journals, but was rejected, which, as you can no doubt guess, only caused him to double down further. He cut out the middleman, taking his position straight to the public. He participated in a story for the BBC, saying, quote, This theory, rather sadly, has gone from strength to strength. It's not proven by any means, but it's looking very strong. Later on, he gave it his 95% confidence. It was 1999, and the fortunes of the OPV hypothesis were changing rapidly. Bill Hamilton wasn't the only person whose curiosity was piqued by the Rolling Stone article. Another was Edward Hooper, a former BBC freelancer who'd been reporting about AIDS in Africa since the mid-80s. Hooper had spent seven years digging into the idea, and the more he looked, the more convinced he became. The correlation between Kaprowski's vaccination sites and early HIV outbreaks was too strong to be coincidental, he thought. He compiled what he believed to be a massive trove of evidence and turned it into a book which Little Brown published in 1999 under the title The River. The River is an absolute brick of a book. That copy of Infinite Jest you keep around in the vain hope that you might at some point dedicate a year of your life to reading it cover to cover, it's got nothing on the river. Over the course of its 1,000-plus page length, the river makes a detailed and compelling argument for the OPV hypothesis, while also lobbing some thinly-veiled charges of conspiracy among the scientific establishment to suppress it. It was a multi-edition selling, soaring success, and it made that self-same scientific establishment stand up and take notice, in no small part because of the book's foreword, which was composed by one of said scientific establishment's most accomplished, if controversial, members, Bill Hamilton. But that wasn't all. As an esteemed member, Bill Hamilton also pushed for the Royal Society to hold a special scientific meeting about the origin of AIDS in light of Hooper's book. And the Society agreed. On September 11, 2000, the Society would convene for a comprehensive, methodical debate. It was hardly set to be a fair fight. The lion's share of biologists, virologists, immunologists, epidemiologists, and vaccinologists were skeptical or downright hostile to the OPV hypothesis. And the main advocate, Edward Hooper, was a non-scientist with an undergraduate degree in American literature. But with Bill Hamilton on his side, he might just win the day. Unfortunately, Bill Hamilton would not be able to attend the Royal Society Conference. While the publication of The River had given the OPV hypothesis a swift punch in the arm, there was something else happening in 1999 that endangered it. Just a year after the first Congolese Civil War had ended, a new and much larger conflict had sprung up. The Great War of Africa pitted a vast number of nations and militias against one another, chiefly Rwandan and Ugandan forces who launched invasions into the Democratic Republic of Congo. Much of the early fighting took place in and around Kinshasa, and by fighting, I mostly mean massacring. The Great War of Africa was a humanitarian disaster of a scale which only really the most tragic skirmishes in history can hope to compete. Estimates put the total casualties between 1998 and 2008 at 5.4 million. In 1999, Bill Hamilton had a different grave fear about the war. If the OPV hypothesis were correct, there should be a reservoir 
of closely related SIV-CPZ in the chimp population near Kaprowski's old lab in Stanleyville. But with the war raging, civilians suffering, and stricken with hunger, there was a chance that the chimp population would be hunted out of existence, or the jungle raised, and with them, any ability to conclusively say whether they were the origin of HIV. Hamilton had been to Africa many times, had conducted an incredible amount of research there, mostly with insects, testing, observing, and developing his ideas on kin selection. At 63 years old, he decided he would venture there once more to find the chimps Kaprowski's team had used to inadvertently kick off AIDS. Beginning in late 1999, just after the publication of The River, Hamilton set out with two others to locate Kaprowski's chimps. It was a very different kind of expedition than he was used to. The Great African War was at its peak and centered largely around Kinshasa, not far from Kaprowski's old site at Stanleyville. And Hamilton's sexagenarian health was not what it once was. In January of 2000, he returned again, and this time he contracted malaria. The trip was cut short. In spite of a round of antimalarials, Bill Hamilton's health continued to decline. When he arrived back in London on January 29, 2000, he was immediately admitted to intensive care at University College Hospital. Five days later, he was transferred to Middlesex Hospital, where he continued to deteriorate. On March 7th, he died. While initially malaria was assumed to have been the cause, a later inquest showed a different culprit. In addition to the antimalarials, Bill Hamilton had also taken an insoluble pill containing aspirin. In a freak turn, that aspirin had gotten lodged in a small hollow in his upper intestine, where it had sat, slowly eating away his duodenum, eventually causing a hemorrhage. Richard Dawkins organized his memorial. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Without Bill Hamilton there to defend him, the Royal Society ate Edward Hooper alive. Over the course of two days, scientists from multiple disciplines, labs, and backgrounds cast out on the OPV hypothesis, and before the meeting had even concluded, major media outlets were declaring it dead. In the decades since, there's been a fair amount of controversy about whether Hooper and his hypothesis were treated fairly by the Royal Society. Most recently, Stanford anthropologist Lachlan Jane wrote a brutal examination of the meeting in their 2020 Medical Anthropology Quarterly article, The Wet Net. Jane, like many Hooper supporters before, argues that the meeting was biased against the OPV hypothesis from the start, and that the scientists allied against it were motivated mainly by a defense of their colleague, Hilary Kaprowski, and an unwillingness to look their own scientific and colonial practices in the eye. I want to be even more careful now, because it is not often that I swerve this far out of my lane. Lachlan Jane is an accomplished professor and an esteemed academic, and I am, to my eternal embarrassment, a podcaster. But I think the assertions Jane makes are not very well established or supported. And to make them, Jane has to dismiss or ignore a lot of stuff. Still, they're a meticulous researcher and a considered thinker, so I think the wet net makes a pretty good jumping off point for explaining both why the OPV hypothesis is wrong and why the Royal Society meeting concluded that. Since that September 2000 debate, the OPV hypothesis has suffered a near endless string of body blows. And the then more mainstream hypothesis has only become more dominant. Whatever else you might think about the treatment of Hooper and Hamilton, that is for good reason. Let me count the ways. One complaint Hooper had was that there were stores of Kaprowski's vaccines developed in the Congo on ice in Philadelphia, and that they'd never been tested either for HIV, SIV, or chimp DNA. But less than a year after the Royal Society meeting, four separate independent labs took up the challenge. And not only were there no signs of either virus or of chimps being used in culturing the virus, but instead there was proof that the tested doses had been cultured in macaque kidneys instead. This gels with statements made by most of the scientists working on Kaprowski's vaccine, who have denied not only that chimpanzees were ever used in making it, but have even denied that the lab's setup would have allowed them to use chimpanzees even if they'd wanted to. Two subsequent investigations also concluded that there was no evidence that chimpanzees were ever used to culture Kaprowski's polio vaccine. Instead, they found ample documentation of macaques and Reese's monkeys. And that makes sense, because chimpanzees would be a terrible choice for the job. Compared to other primates, like macaques and Reese's monkeys, they're far more expensive to purchase, far more difficult to trap, and far more risky to work with. Not to mention that many people, even immunologists, might have had more tenderness for chimpanzees, owing to their intelligence and closeness to humans. Even if it were true, which again, all evidence suggests that it is not that the polio campaign used chimpanzees from around their lab site, there is no evidence that that population of chimps had SIV-CPZ. In fact, there is ample reason to doubt it. 
A 2006 article published in Science established that the specific SIV-CPZ strain most closely related to HIV-1M infects a subspecies of chimpanzee, Pantroglodytes troglodytes, which is endemic to southern Cameroon, 400 miles north of the Stanleyville polio lab. As for the chimps near the lab, well, there is no evidence that they harbor infections from any strain of SIV at all. In his last ill-fated expeditions to Congo, Bill Hamilton managed to gather fecal samples from more than 60 local chimps. None of them showed any sign of infection. In his desperate attempt to prove the hypothesis, he had actually only made it less likely. Hooper and other proponents of the OPV hypothesis argue that none of this is conclusive, that only a small selection of vaccines and chimps were tested, and that nobody, not Hooper, nor Hamilton, nor anybody else, had ever claimed that all of Kaprowski's vaccines were contaminated, nor all of the local chimps. And that is a fair point. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, although it sure as hell is not evidence of presence either. However, there is real evidence that not only fails to corroborate the OPV hypothesis, but directly contradicts it. I mean, it really puts the final nail in the coffin. The main reason to think that the OPV vaccine could have caused HIV, you'll recall, is the timing and the location. The vaccine was delivered in southern Congo between 1957 and 1960, and the first verified case of AIDS dates to a blood sample found in Kinshasa, nay Leopoldville, in 1959. There's a lot of evidence suggestive that HIV first began to really spread there in Leopoldville too, but that is not as good a thing for the OPV hypothesis as it first appears. See, the second earliest verified case of HIV was also found in Leopoldville in 1960, just a year after the first. But the strain of HIV present in the second case was very, very different from the strain found in the first. HIV-1A. The two earliest known cases of HIV-1 aren't related. In order for both strains to have been present in Kinshasa in 1960, HIV must have already been circulating in the population for a good long while, probably since at least the 1930s, perhaps earlier, and definitely long before the oral polio vaccine campaign. Researchers have since tried numerous means to triangulate the approximate time the virus first spilled into the human population. And while their conclusions vary a good bit and tend to define pretty long ranges, they all put the actual origin of HIV-1 back to at least the 1930s, as the initial studies suggested, with an overall range between 1873 and 1933. There is, essentially, no way the OPV could have been involved. The most likely and widely accepted hypothesis for the origin of HIV is that it entered the human population via bushmeat. It could be that a chimp, probably in southern Cameroon, infected with SIV-CPZ, was hunted, killed, undercooked, and then eaten. But neither SIV nor HIV spread very well orally, so the most likely route is either that a chimp bit a hunter, or someone along the bushmeat chain, hunter, vendor, or cook, got chimp blood in an open wound. OPV advocates, including Hooper and even Lachlan Jane, albeit in a more restrained way, say that this is as unlikely or circuitous a path of transmission as the vaccine route. But it's really not. 
A 2005 study in the Journal of Emerging Infectious Diseases showed that in Cameroon, 2.3% of the general population shows serological signs of infection with SIV. In people from villages that hunted bushmeat, the rate of SIV claimed to 7.8%. Among people who hunted or butchered the meat, the exposure to SIV was 17.1%. Simian immunodeficiency virus, it would seem, crosses into humans via bushmeat all the time. That conclusion is also backed up by the other subtypes of HIV. HIV-2 is less contagious and less virulent than its globalized cousin. It's mostly contained to Western Africa, particularly around Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Ivory Coast. But HIV-2 didn't come from HIV-1. It came from a different strain of SIV, endemic to a small, endangered, old-world monkey called the sooty mangabe. What's more, there are a total of eight known subgroups of HIV-2, and only two of those subgroups appear to have crossed the zoonotic gap together. The others are all the product of separate, discrete contacts with SIV. Seven different sooty mangabees have been vectors for seven different evolutions of HIV that we know of. Just to rub it in, the Royal Society was right when it dismissed the OPV hypothesis and endorsed the cut hunter hypothesis, but that doesn't mean that they were right for the right reasons. Officially, Lachlan Jane has nothing to say about the veracity of the OPV hypothesis itself, although they seem pretty comfy with it, frankly, and curiously hostile to the cut hunter hypothesis. Nevertheless, Jane's point is more about the biases of the people who came to the conclusions than the conclusions themselves. They argue, as Hooper has argued, that the Royal Society Conference never really took the OPV hypothesis seriously, even in 2000, when they should have. After all, in the year 2000, the old vaccines had not yet been analyzed. The SIV-CPC subspecies had not yet been located to Cameroon. The second victim in 1960 had not been identified, and the DNA of the two early Kinshasa strains had not been compared. What, then, had been so convincing to the Royal Society? If you listen to the OPV hypothesis apologists, there was no good reason. It was only, or mostly, bias at play. The most noble bias was an unwillingness to sully the science of vaccines, and a fear that the OPV hypothesis would hamper efforts to eradicate polio in Africa. That's a pretty grounded fear, because indeed it did hamper efforts to eradicate polio in Africa. There's plenty of other disinformation about the polio vaccine that increased hesitancy, including a particularly salient and baseless rumor that it caused infertility. But there is no doubt that the free-flowing idea that polio vaccines cause AIDS made it harder to deliver polio vaccines. Still, as Hamilton held, that is not the point. If the hypothesis were true, then it wasn't the hypothesis's fault, it was science's. Which is the second possible bias, that this collection of eminent scientists were hesitant to let their field take the blame for AIDS because they liked their field. Jane seems to think that that was the bulk of it, that the Royal Society didn't want to contemplate that it had made mistakes, that it could have fucked up so badly, which makes sense and was probably present to some degree. But that also ignores that nearly everyone who looked into the OPV hypothesis and dismissed it nevertheless accepted that the way Kaprowski's vaccine had been made, tested, and delivered was reckless. 
1992, in the wake of that original Rolling Stone article, Kaprowski's old lab initiated an investigation into the theory. That investigation concluded that vaccines should not be cultured in primates anymore, that it was a risky and ethically questionable practice. But they also concluded that the OPV hypothesis was massively unlikely. The Royal Society sang the same basic tune. There had been mistakes. They just weren't responsible for HIV. Like SV40, science had been saved by dumb luck. The thing is, of course there was bias on the cut hunter side, but focusing so exclusively on that and to the exclusion of the rampant bias shown by Hooper et al. is how you get conspiracy theories. And to my nose, the OPV hypothesis, though technically plausible, reads like a conspiracy theory. While the Royal Society might have been primed to reject it back in 2000, there was plenty of legitimate reason for them to. Hamilton's expedition had produced no signs of SIV around the old lab. HIV-2 had already been identified as coming from a separate event. A good number of scientists had already attested that chimp kidneys hadn't been used in the production of the vaccine, a finding consistent with common sense. And unlike with SV40, there had never been any evidence to suggest that SIV could have survived the vaccine manufacturing process, let alone thrived through it. Not to mention a big, obvious, gleaming problem. The reason believers of the natural transfer hypothesis presume that someone was cut in the process of hunting or preparing bushmeat instead of by eating it is that neither SIV nor HIV transmit well orally. And what does the first letter of OPV stand for? Oral. It was a pill. Jane takes particularly venomous aim at Robin Weiss, an esteemed microbiologist, fellow of the Royal Society, and convener of the HIV Origins Conference. They write, Weiss's conclusion to the proceedings employs an intriguing method to leave the door ajar for future consideration of the OPV theory, while at the same time appearing to reject it outright. After each point Weiss makes in favor of the cut hunter theory, he curiously loops back to note that none of his points disproves the OPV hypothesis. Such rhetorical skill, I would argue, was a crucial factor in the closure of the debate over OPV as a source of HIV. I would argue that what Jane is describing here isn't rhetorical skill at all, but good science. Clarifying that a hypothesis remains plausible if improbable and that the strength of one hypothesis does not automatically invalidate another is sound, reasonable practice. And it's certainly not the tone you'd expect from someone trying to bury a theory. But here's the part that really stuck in my craw and made me feel a fulsome need to talk about Jane's paper in the midst of everything else I could have focused on. Jane writes of Weiss, Suffice it to say that amid complexity and speculation, Weiss turns to Occam's razor, a problem-solving principle asserting that the simplest explanation is generally the correct one. Weiss argues that the OPV theory is unnecessarily complicated. Specifically, the diversification date of the virus according to phylogeneticists would have been the date that it entered the human species. Whereas for Hooper, a number of similar viruses from chimp tissue cultures would have transferred to humans in the course of the vaccine trials of the 1956-60 period. Turning to medieval philosophy to adjudicate an issue of this magnitude offers an intriguing move. Surely the simplest explanation depends on one's basic disposition or knowledge base. 
For some people, for example, consideration of the colonial and neocolonial relations that structured this trial, and arguably the Royal Society's consideration of the OPV hypothesis, and perhaps even the development of modern virology itself, would be essential. I hate this paragraph with the heat of a thousand desert suns. It is, in my opinion, the kind of misuse of postmodernism that makes me wonder whether we should throw the whole thing out and just go back to fucking Heidegger. And Heidegger was a Nazi. Colonialism and neocolonialism are both bad, but merely evoking their existence in proximity to a result you dislike is not an argument of any kind. Not to mention that the cut-hunter hypothesis is replete with criticisms of colonialism that are taken very seriously. If that theory is correct, which it certainly appears to be, it draws a big question. SIV has existed in chimps and other primates for thousands of years, and humans have hunted, eaten, and made fluid transfer with them for at least a very significant portion of that time. So why did HIV only begin to spread noticeably among people in the 1900s? Now, there are a lot of theories, and more than one of them are probably true, but they all come down to blaming colonialism. Bushmeat became a larger and larger portion of certain Central and West Africans' diets precisely because white colonizers pushed them out of their farmlands. That explanation was published before the Royal Society Conference, and nobody took umbrage with it. Forced labor camps and forced migration via colonials is pretty widely accepted as part of why HIV took hold in Kinshasa. Forced labor in French Equatorial Africa is considered a prime suspect for how SIV became HIV. French colonizers inoculated Africans against smallpox and other diseases to keep them working, but they sometimes reused needles, which might have led to serial infections of SIV, giving the virus more and more chances to mutate into a form that thrived in humans. Urbanization Prostitution, STI-related genital ulceration, male circumcision, nearly every proposed explanation for how HIV got a foothold after entering humans via the cut-hunter hypothesis rests on the horrors of colonialism, and none of them engendered the kinds of conspiracy that Hamilton, Hooper, or Jane insinuate. The truth is that Occam's razor is and was a good reason to be skeptical of the OPV hypothesis. The simpleness in Occam's razor isn't a subjective argument between stoners of whether a cloud is more like a pirate ship or a penis. It's a heuristic that says that entities should not be multiplied beyond necessity, and that of two competing theories, the one with the fewest number of moving parts, steps, parameters, rules, exceptions, is probably the better. That William of Ockham sharpened his razor in the 1400s is entirely irrelevant to anything. Shit, Ockham's razor might be the only good thing from the 1400s that we should keep. In the case of the OPV hypothesis, Ockham's razor cuts a lot of ways. The hypothesis rests on a number of plausible but unlikely events. The chimps having SIV, the scientists using those chimps' kidneys in the culture, the virus surviving the process, the virus spreading through the oral vaccine, and all of that had to happen multiple times to account for all the types and subtypes. In contrast, all that's required for the cut-hunter hypothesis is a cut-hunter, something that happens all the time. 17.1%. 
If it hasn't occurred to you already, we could just as easily be talking about the COVID lab leak hypothesis right now, which, by the way, Edward Hooper supports and alleges yet another conspiracy about. The two hypotheses and their treatments are remarkably similar. Both of them are plausible. Yes, you heard me. The lab leak hypothesis is entirely plausible. And both of them are probably more readily discarded because of the politics and concerns of their moments. They are also both improbable. The OPV hypothesis is pretty much entirely dead. Nothing is impossible, but that is not the same thing as saying it is likely, or even likely enough to devote attention to. Now, the lab leak hypothesis isn't as bad off as OPV, but it's not doing particularly well, and it's still a lot younger than OPV. The most fundamental reason for skepticism is that damn William of Ockham and his medieval chicanery. Zoonotic diseases can make the leap because of human actions. SV40 is a great example of that. So yes, a polio vaccine could turn SIV into HIV, and gain-of-function research in a Wuhan lab could accidentally lead to a new and virulent coronavirus. But diseases make their way from animals to humans by natural means all the time. Like, every day. From bushmeat, birds and bats, from rodents and factory farming, and just any old way. Why should HIV or COVID be any different? Because they're too big. They're too important. They're too terrifying. This is what pushes these hypotheses into conspiracy theory land. The unidentified bias in their advocates is the belief that these diseases require a special explanation beyond what we'd accept for a new cold or flu. Because something as awful and consequential as AIDS or COVID couldn't just happen out of chance. The same way that a president couldn't just be shot the way so many other people are. Or a group of hijackers couldn't run planes into buildings. We concoct conspiracy theories mainly because they provide a sense of order. A clear moral lesson, a villain, a logic. When the truth is that there is no higher order. There is no grand scheme. There is no hidden reason. Awful things just happen sometimes. That's the truth. And if we can't accept that, that's not the truth's fault. We've only got ourselves to blame. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks go out to John Tangney, Brian Spence, Sarah Heights, Angela Stefanski, Alec R., Chris Mendoza, and Elliot Warren, along with all the other patrons whose continuing support makes this show possible. If you would like to join them and get access both to ad-free episodes and bonus stories every month, go to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where I am urging you to get the reformulated BA5 COVID booster as soon as you are able, this has been The Constant. Unbeknownst to anyone, portions of both of the major American vaccines, Salk's injectable inactivated virus version, as well as Albert Sabin's attenuated oral one, God damn it. Why do I write like this? 
all these parentheticals. Parentheticals upon parentheticals. Like I'm fucking Immanuel Kant. Whereas for Hooper, a number of similar viruses from chimp tissue cultures would have... Fuck. You write as badly as I do. Fuck.